one another. And by the way, if you have love, if you have the love that he's talking about, you will be holy. If you have the love that he's talking about, you will be just. You will be just like Christ if you're allowing the love to flow through you. But love is the most important. Love, in the, love is the most important. If we don't walk in love in this world, we will be just like the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. Religious people who draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. We will be like those kind of people. Jesus wants us to love him and to love others. These are the two greatest commandments. When the scribe asked him, hey, Jesus, tell me what the two greatest commandments are. He said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In these two hang all of the law and the prophets. They both contain the law of love. They both contain the word love because love is the most important attribute that we must display in the world. It would be, it, it, you know, the Bible d describes God in 1 John as love, 1 John 4. God is love. That's the definition of God. He is love. So we ought to also be loving people. And man, that's hard to do when somebody really messes you over, isn't it? It's really hard to do to be loving in, in a moment when your flesh wants to rear out and you want to attack a person or you want to harbor unforgiveness in your heart or you, know, you want to sever a relationship because they've done something so bad towards you. And yet for love's sake, Christians are supposed to get over themselves. Christians are supposed to die to themselves. Christians are supposed to say, you know what? Man, I've done a lot of wrongs in my life and God has forgiven me. How could I hold it against you? Even if they're not sorry. Even if they're not sorry, you're a prisoner of a person. If you allow bitterness and resentment to rule your life, you're their prisoner. That's why God talks a lot about forgiveness in the Bible, talks a lot about love in the Bible, because he wants us to be his prisoner, not anybody else's. And Unfortunately, we can succumb to that easily if we're walking in the flesh. It's all for love's sake, folks. Jesus came for love's sake. He died for love's sake. He rose again for love's sake. And we must reconcile with one another for love's sake. So let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever been hurt by somebody in the body of Christ? Have you ever been hurt by somebody outside of the body of Christ? Maybe they did something that was incredibly harmful towards you. Maybe they even took something that belonged to you. They stole from you. They sinned against you in some way. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do as believers? We're supposed to address it, right? We're, we're called to, if a brother sins against you, Matthew 18, go to that brother, show him, show him the fault. The most, the most disobeyed scripture in all of the Bible, I think, I'm offended by you, but I'm not going to address it with you. I'm going to tell somebody else about it, which is two sins, by the way. Rejecting Matthew 18, and then you're gossiping about it too. Oh, you should have heard what so-and-so did. Man. 
when we're wronged, we're supposed to address the sin and then we're supposed to deal with it in our own hearts. Get the log out of your own eye before you pick the splinter out of your brother's eye, right? We're supposed to do this self-examination process, go to that person, deal with our sin. Here's what happened and I'm, you know, I'm, my feathers are ruffled, board, but, but you're prepared for this conversation because you've gone before the Lord. You've prepared your heart for it even if they're not willing to reconcile with you you yourself are going to set, you're going to be set free in that moment because you're going to go to them and deal with this and you're going to address it. That's not where it stops, but that's where it stops for you if they're not willing to reconcile with you. You take somebody else with you and then if, if they're not willing to reconcile, then you, uh, you know, you bring them before the church. That, that's an entire process. It's in a big process. It's not like what happens is everybody skips the, um, the other two and they just go directly to the church. Hey, hey, this person did this to me. Can you deal with it? Nope, I can't. Have you done Matthew 18 yet? That's where we start. We start with the Bible. But that's how it's done. I mean, the Lord knows that when we get a bunch of sinners in a room, there's going to be problems, right? There's going to be issues. People are not going to like each other. There's gonna, people are going to offend each other. Feathers will be ruffled and all of these sorts of things. God knows that. That's why he put in the Bible, uh, you know, things for us to think about and to ways that we're supposed to deal with these sorts of things. And then he reminds us over and over and over again that we're to forgive, that we're to love people, that we're to reconcile with people. We've been given the ministry and the message of reconciliation. So we need to be these kinds of people that are willing to um, get beyond our own feelings about things and, and our offenses and deal with these things so that we can love each other freely. You know, so that we can be in right standing with the Lord and right standing with the body of Christ so that we can truly just be free to worship the Lord. No one will do this perfectly, but we should strive our very best not to harbor any unforgiveness towards anybody because we've been forgiven so much. And when you break it down to that level, really, the trivial things that we get upset about and we hold, you know, we hold on to, man, it's crazy. If you've never read the book, I highly encourage you to read the book Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. He was an attorney, Christian attorney, who um, went into ministry. Uh, it's, it's biblical reconciliation, and, you know, where he helps people understand the process of biblical reconciliation. When there's conflict in your life, there will be conflict in your life, always, you know. But it, he helps you understand that. I highly encourage you to read that book. I've gone through that book multiple times. As a pastor, you don't have to deal with any conflict at all, ever. So, you know, we just put it on Pastor Brian and Pastor Mike. You know, we just say, hey, you guys deal with that stuff. No. But you need to understand how to do it. But it starts in the heart, folks. It starts in your heart. It starts right there. Paul is addressing something so serious in this culture. The, the, the thing that he's addressing is not just hurt feelings, folks. This is a crime that's been committed. This is a crime where capital punishment it could be the end for Onesimus because he's, he's wronged his master, and he had that right. Philemon had that right. Paul understood where this could go if Philemon was unwilling to reconcile with Onesimus. No, you wronged me, man, and now you're going to pay the penalty because I have the right to do this. I'm not going to forgive you. I have the right. I have the legal right to do this, so I'm going to put you to death. 
It's kind of like the parable Jesus told about the one guy that was forgiven so much, like a gazillion dollars worth of debt. He begged his master to forgive him, and then he turns around and goes to this other servant, and the servant owes him just a little bit of money, and he put him in prison until he could pay him. That's what a Christian's like that's unwilling to forgive. We've been forgiven so much. And Paul is reminding Philemon in this letter about who he is. He's reminding him in in this letter about his character, about his nature, so that when he's faced with this trial and he understands, oh, yeah, this is who I am. Because we all have the temptation to get in the flesh, don't we? We can all jump in the flesh, man. Philemon had the, the legal right to have Onesimus put to death because not only did he run away from him, he stole from him first. He stole from him to probably get enough money to leave, and then he ran away from him to the farthest place that he could find, to the biggest city that he could find, which was Rome at the time. They estimate 60 million to 80 million people there during this time. Philemon, or Onesimus, thinks he can just slip into the crowd and go unnoticed. Here's the thing. There was one person that saw him the whole time. It was the Lord. And the Lord wasn't going to let him get away with these things. Don't you love that about God? He's the only one that knows everything about you. And you know what? He confronts you. He's so gentle when he does it, though. He's like, hey, what are you thinking you're doing here? And you're like, oh, nothing. Nobody knows. I know. I know, and I'm knocking on your door right now, and I know but I love you, but you shouldn't do this. And he, and he does that, you know? But he will escalate the situation if we're not willing to, to hear his voice. He'll bring other people involved in it. He'll embarrass us. He will do whatever he has to do to get our attention. Why? Because he loves us. He, wants, he doesn't want us to live in the, in, at a low level where we can live, you know, in total freedom. He wants us to be set free. Onesimus is hiding in Rome, And we don't know how this happened, but somehow he finds his way to Paul. Paul is imprisoned. It's his first imprisonment in Rome. And remember, his first imprisonment was totally, totally relaxed in comparison to his second imprisonment. His first imprisonment in Rome is sort of a house arrest. He's able to rent a place there. He's able to have guests over. He's chained to soldiers for sure. The whole time, he's chained to soldiers. Rather than an ankle bracelet, he's got a dude hooked up up to him, you know, 24-7. That guy, they all get saved, no doubt, because they hear the gospel over and over and over again. And in fact, uh, in the the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, these Colossians, as Paul is writing these things, he says at the end of Philippians, the entire household of Caesar, uh, you know, has come to the Lord. He's basically saying they're your brothers now. Because he's led so many of these guards that were chained to him to the Lord during this time. But somehow, you know, Onesimus finds his way into Paul's life. Now, it's interesting to note that when Philemon got saved, probably in Ephesus, because Paul had never gone to Colossae, he, he had intentions to, and we see in this letter that he tells Philemon, hey, prepare a bed for me. I'd love to come and hang out with you. But he had never gone there before. So scholars believe that Philemon had come to Ephesus where Paul was and where he heard the gospel. He got saved. And it could have been it perhaps that uh, Onesimus was with Philemon in Ephesus. That, that could be a real likely 
uh, scenario because, um, you know, masters traveled with their slaves during this time. So they would come and take, their, take care of their stuff or whatever. And, um, you know, so maybe, maybe Onesimus even knows Paul to some degree. He, maybe he's, he's familiar with him. He's definitely heard the gospel before. You know why? Because here we find that Philemon has a church in his house. It's the church of Colossae. When Paul writes the letter to the Colossians here in the Bible, it's to the church that's in Philemon's house. That's who he's writing to. And, and so maybe Onesimus has been exposed to, he's definitely been exposed to the gospel. He's heard the gospel. He maybe even knows Paul. He's in Rome. He's on the run. He knows the, the, the ramifications for what he's done. And yet he finds himself at the foot of the cross going, man, what am I doing? What is this life all about? How could I ever make right this wrong? You ever been there? How could God ever forgive me for this? Listen, this guy was in dire straits. And he comes to the Lord through Paul. Paul calls him his son in the faith. Somehow, Paul, you know, some interaction, he came to know the Lord. And what I love about Paul is that he doesn't gloss over the issues that still exist. He doesn't say, oh, man, you're a believer now, dude. Everything's good. High five, you know. You're just going to hang out with me. You're useful to me now and all these kind of things. You can hang out here and we'll do this. No, you know what he says? Dude, you got to go back. You got to go make that right. You ever done that? You got saved? You ever gone back and said something to somebody and said, hey, man, you know what? I'm a believer now. And what I did was totally wrong. One time I um, had a girlfriend um, when I was around 18, 19 years old. She got pregnant, and I talked her into aborting the baby. And so I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know anything. You know, I knew it was wrong. I'm not going to give myself an out. But I, I talked her, and I'm like, dude, how are we going to do this? I'm going to college. You're doing whatever, you know, so how are we going to do this? There's no way we can do this man, you just, we just need to abort this baby. We need to do it, you know? And, and I kept telling her that. I kept telling her that. I kept putting pressure on her to do it. And guess what? She did it. And so we end up breaking up. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I get saved. And I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm just letting God just, you know, just wreck me you know, and, and, and receiving forgiveness for things that I'd done that I hadn't even thought about, but, you know, the Lord brings up, and then I would, would just be receiving these forgiveness. But he said, hey, you need to go make this right with this girl. And um, here's the thing is, it's, it's not so much about, how, there's no way we could really make that right, but you need to go tell her what God has done in your life. You need to go tell her what I've done in your life, and you need to ask her for forgiveness. And so, I go to her and I start talking to her and I'm saying, hey, you know, it's kind of awkward, but, you know, we were still kind of friends and I said, listen, you know, when, I, when you got pregnant, you know, and, and I talked you into it, you know, man, I'm so sorry. I got saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and he, he, he gave me a new life and, and, you know, this is something that I need, he, he told me I needed to come talk to you about. 
you know, and, and, but what he wants you to know is you also can be forgiven. He can forgive you as well. But I'm, I'm asking you to forgive me for being part of that and for contributing to that and, and you know, allowing, you know, you to go down that road, even by yourself. I didn't, what a, what a pathetic guy that doesn't even show up with her, you know, let alone talk her into it. That's, that's what sin does, and that's what the flesh will do if you're walking in the flesh. And so I told her everything about what Jesus had done, and I told her he wants to do that for you. He wants to, he wants to forgive you because I knew that she was so burdened by this. I could see that she was just a broken person, you know. And, um, and it just, uh, she, was, she grew up Mormon, and she had an idea about a, a Jesus, but not the Jesus I'm talking about. And so I had a real opportunity to share the gospel with her. And what she did with it, I do not know. But here's what I do know. Like five years later, she died of cancer. Five years later, she died of cancer. And I wonder, you know, if that wasn't the Lord in that moment, not only working in my life to bring, you know, healing in my own heart, but also in her heart, but also to reveal to her the necessity of the Lord. You don't know why God does stuff. You don't know why he puts these things in your past. And I'm not suggesting, I don't think the Bible suggests that you need to go back and make every wrong that you've done right. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But there are some things the Lord wants you to go back and deal with. There are some things in your life that maybe even are coming to mind right now. You're like, the Lord has told me a couple times that I need to do this. You don't know why he wants to do it. So you need to do it if, that's, if the Lord's telling you to do something. But... Paul is telling Philemon, hey, it's great that you're a believer, but you got to go back and make this right. You have to. You have to go back to Philemon. And I think in Paul's mind, he knows if this goes well, if this goes like it's supposed to go, God will be glorified in this moment. Like probably no other situation in Philemon's life, God will be glorified to such a degree he will be an illustration to the world of what true forgiveness looks like because he had the right to put him to death. And so Paul sends him back to Colossae to deal with it. He doesn't send him empty-handed, though, and I love that about him. He writes a letter. He writes a personal letter to Philemon. He tells him the whole story, and he pleads with him. This is a picture of Jesus Christ, folks, if you don't capture Jesus in the book of Philemon, you're missing uh, the, the really the key points of the book of Philemon. Paul is acting as a type of Christ here. He's a third party. He's standing in the gap between these two broken people and their broken relationship. And he's saying, hey, God can forgive you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to mend this relationship. He wants to make it new and he can do it. But you guys have to be willing to, you know, and that's why he's telling Onesimus, you got to go back and I'm going to send a letter and I'm going to appeal to Philemon to remember who he is in Christ so that when he comes, you guys can have this glorious reunion. And he says even, not that, that hey, maybe he went away. Paul, Paul even, he says, maybe he ran away. Maybe he stole from you and ran away so that he could come back to you forever. So that he could become a believer that whole process of what God is doing in those wrong moments in Onesimus' life, God is drawing him in. And now he goes back to Philemon and he is saved forever. 
Listen, he is going to spend eternity with Philemon in heaven. This bondservant thing is a temporary thing. It's a temporary thing. Don't forget your relationships and, and the things that have happened in your relationships are temporary things. Eternity is coming. What if, <laughs> this is a funny thought, what if God said, oh, well, you're, you might want to get right with that person. You're going to spend all of eternity with them. You, I'm going to assign you to that person in wherever you're going to be in all of eternity, and you're going to have to work next to them. You might want to work this out now so that when you get into heaven, you, I'm, that's obviously not theological, uh, but we'll be perfect in heaven, and we will have everything worked out, but, but it's bigger than you, man, and it's bigger than your feelings. So it's about eternity, and, and Paul is acting as a type of Christ here. He's, he's saying, listen, the penalty has been paid already. And Paul says, don't forget Philemon. It was by me that you became a, a, a Christian. Your life was given to you because I shared the gospel with you. He's reminding him of his entire, you know, conversion story and who he's supposed to be now and all of these kinds of things because... He wants this to go well. And so he sends Onesimus back to Colossae with this letter. Could you imagine being, being Philemon and opening up a letter from Paul? Whoa, how awesome would that be? I want to encourage you this morning that if you're at odds with another believer in this body or elsewhere, that you give this letter through the next couple weeks the attention that it deserves in your heart. And if you're not, you still need to pay very close attention because you will be at some point. You will, will be at odds with somebody at some point in your life. And so you want to take very careful consideration to what Paul is saying here because he's saying not, even though this is a personal letter, it was God writing to you and I at the same time through the Apostle Paul. God can take a personal letter that was meant and intended for a person in a specific situation, and he's applying it to all of us right now, right here. And so we want to take careful consideration to what he's saying here. We're just going to look at the first, uh, you know, seven verses today, and then we will bust into the rest of it next week. What an introduction, huh? First, we're going to consider the greeting that Paul gives to uh, Philemon in verse 1 here. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins here by identifying himself as the writer, as customary of the day, rather than as we do, put our name at the bottom. They put their name at the top, so they wrote in scrolls, so they didn't have to unravel the thing to figure out who it was from. Paul identifies himself immediately. He really doesn't need an introduction. We know who Paul is, but, but there's something valuable, I think, in remembering who Paul is as it relates to the subject matter in this letter. Because he was, he, he was once Saul, the religious zealot, the Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, that 70 uh, group of men who were the elite of the elite of that day. He was the cream of the crop in his class, and he was chosen to be part of these elite groups. He had total confidence in himself, and his ability to uh, walk in the law perfectly 
to stand righteously before the Lord in his own works. In fact, he wrote in the book of Philippians as he's meditating back, thinking about who he was at one point when he was Saul, Philippians 3, 4 through 6. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul was, was what every little boy in Jerusalem wanted to be. He was that guy. Man, I want to be like Saul. Look at that guy. He is, he's risen through the ranks. He's, you know, he was, he was, um, taught under Gamaliel, this elite teacher in Jerusalem. I mean, this guy has it all. I want to be just like, just like Saul. And he was a guy who, in his own mind and in everybody else's mind, probably did everything right. And yet, when he's exposed, he realizes that he is totally wrong. Remember, he begins to persecute the church and put uh, Christians in prison and he kills them, murders them, all kinds of stuff like that in the name of the Lord, right? And then he's on his way to Damascus to further that, to, to continue to persecute the church and he's arrested by Jesus Christ. Jesus asks him, Saul, what are you doing? He's like, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So he's having a direct conversation with Jesus Christ. Knocked him right off his high horse. And listen, in this moment, his righteousness, his confidence in the flesh was, was zeal, zero. Meant nothing to him in this moment. He was standing before true righteousness in, in this moment. So all of his worldly works meant nothing in this moment. And I love that he didn't rely on them but the Lord confronted him about his own righteousness. I know that you think you're doing this, but Jesus said, isn't it hard to kick against the goads? What is he saying? He's saying, Saul, your conscience is telling you this is wrong, but you keep doing it anyway because your theology tells you that it's right. Right? I, I choose conscience over my own theology. I choose the conscience of the Holy Spirit working in my life over my own theology. And Paul, in that moment, He's he, he could have chosen theology. Well, no, no, I'm doing the right thing. Jesus said, dude, it's hard to kick against the goads. A goad is like spikes that they put behind horses that are on a plow or something, and when they kick back, they get hurt by it. You're getting hurt by this, Saul. Why don't you receive the gospel and see what I can truly do in your life? And of course, you know the story. He does. Could you imagine the forgiveness that the apostle Paul had to receive from the Lord in this moment? I mean, maybe you've killed somebody. I don't know. He didn't just kill one person. He killed a lot of people. Paul would be considered a mass murderer, even though he was doing it in a legal way, in that way. He killed a lot of people. He lived in his own righteousness, you know. And, and you, you can understand when you are confronted with the gospel how that hits your heart like, man, what in the world was I thinking? How could I have thought these things? How could I have done these things? Lord, I'm so sorry. You can imagine for three days as he's sitting there blind dealing with himself. 
Yet he received a lot of forgiveness from the Lord. And that's why he's able to, to extend a lot of forgiveness to people. You know, and so he, he becomes a believer and his, when, when Saul becomes Paul, he carries the testimony of a man who has been forgiven and restored to God, not because he was good, but because God is good. Because God sent his son and because God is forgiving. And so his, his name here in this letter, Paul, represents the essence of the entire letter here in my mind. Paul, a recon- someone who has been reconciled to reconcile, somebody who has been reconciled to God to be a reconciler in the world. The Lord told him, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, Paul, and you're going to suffer many things for my name's sake. And he was willing to do it because he wanted to be forgiven. And what an amazing testimony he would have. And so you have now Philemon opening up this letter, reading the word Paul, and thinking, oh, man, have a personal relationship with Paul. Paul led me to the Lord at one point. It'd be like you being in a crusade or something, you know, like Billy Graham crusade or a Greg Laurie crusade or something like that. And then, you know, two, two years down the road, you get a personal handwritten letter from Billy Graham or from, you know, Greg Laurie saying, Billy or, you know, Greg, you know, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he starts talking to you about somebody that you have a mutual relationship with. That'd be pretty impactful. It would be pretty special, I think, to him. Paul goes on here. He introduces himself as, not as an apostle, but as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And again, I mentioned this earlier. Paul's not writing with apostolic authority. He's not trying to come at Philemon with, you know, his title. Like, hey, you need to listen to me because I am the apostle Paul. I don't know if you know that or not, but... I am. He says, I am a prisoner for Christ. I'm a prisoner for Christ. Paul is stressing the personal side of himself here to Philemon, that he's a man saved by grace who's been restored to right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Paul is in jail as of a result of his relationship with Jesus. But I, I love the way he says this, that he's, he's in prison for Christ Jesus. It's almost as he's saying, I'm an agent for Jesus in prison. That's the way I read this. Like, he's not saying, like, I'm in prison because I'm a Christian. He's saying, no, I'm in prison because Jesus put me here and he wants to use me. That's why I'm here. I don't know if you ever look at your trials like that. It's probably how we should look at them. We're in whatever situation we're in for Christ Jesus because he's put us in this position so that we can learn something, so that we can grow in a certain way, so that we can be used in our circumstances to bring glory to his name. It's for Christ Jesus. I love that, uh, that, that sort of mentality. This is an assignment Paul looks at from the Lord. That's why he can sit in a cell in Philippi, in Philippi and he can sing to the Lord because he understands who holds his life. He's not worried about being in prison, he's saying, wow, let's sing to the Lord, Silas. Let's sing some worship songs to the Lord. How many of you guys singing worship songs to the Lord when you're in, you know, in prison for you know, just standing up for Jesus? Sometimes I'm thinking like, Lord, what are you doing? Why, why am I here? It's like, Tam, just chill, bro. Oh, we're going through something. Well, I'm gonna get you through it. You're gonna see something incredible through this. 
if you will look, if you will have the right mentality. And Paul ends up leading tons of people to the Lord. Why he's in prison? He understands his mission. He knows that every circumstance in his life, every situation that he goes through is for the gospel's sake. He knows why he's put in these positions. Now, that isn't to say that we can't get ourselves in certain circumstances because of our choices. We can. Paul here is a prisoner for Jesus Christ because he was walking in the will of God, and that was the will of God for him, to be in the middle. Some of us think like, or probably not in this group, but a lot of people in the world that walk around in Christian circles think that God will never put them in a bad situation or what they consider bad. I tell you, like, God does that to me all the time because I don't grow any other way, and neither do you. You wouldn't have come to know the Lord if you hadn't gone through something or you hadn't seen something or hadn't seen the need for Christ. He puts us in, in situations all the time so that we can grow because he loves us. Paul goes on here and he says, he's writing to Philemon here, and he, who is a fellow worker in Christ. Philemon is, you know, not necessarily a pastor, but he's got a, he's got a um, church in his home, and he's, he's walking out the gospel in his life. He's being used by the Lord. He's a fellow worker in Christ. He also mentions um, probably who, who is his wife, Aphia. Um, and then he also mentions um, Archippus, who is also uh, probably their son. So he's talking about this family here now. This is very personal. Paul's mentioning his wife. He's mentioning Philemon's son, who he mentions is a fellow soldier in the Lord. This is, a, this is a believing family. Like this whole family came to Christ. Paul writing this going, man, look what the Lord's done with this family. How amazing is it? Remember, Philemon, you came to the Lord and your wife, she's walking with the Lord. Your son's walking with the Lord. Man, look what God has done in your life. That's kind of how I think that he's writing this. This entire family has been affected by Paul's ministry. We don't know much about Aphia other than she just mentioned here. We know that she had a, house, a church in her home, which most of you ladies, to have a home fellowship in your home is a big deal because you got to get stuff ready and all that kind of stuff, right? You want to, this is your home. Guys don't care. Stuff's laying around all over the place. You're like, she's like, you're going to pick that up? I'm like, why? Why would I do that? They don't care. Ladies are different. But, but Paul mentions uh, Archippus in his letter to the church in Colossae. In verse 4, verse 17, he exhorts him here. And he says, um, say to Archippus, say, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. It's like he's encouraging this kid. Paul always poured into younger people. You know that? He was always looking for an opportunity to pour into younger people. And we talked about this in Titus about how the older are to pour into the younger and how important that is. And, and Paul saw that as important all the time. He didn't have to mention Archippus here. He didn't have to mention him at the end of Colossians. Like, oh, hey, by the way, make sure you exhort him to step into his ministry. No. Paul was always thinking about the next generation. He's always thinking about who's going who's gonna to take over, who's going to continue to, who am I going to pass the mantle to? He had Timothy. He had Titus. He's encouraging Archippus. And I, I would say to you, I say it all the time, but do you have a Timothy or an Archippus or a Titus in your life that you're pouring into? You need to. You need to have somebody in your life like that. That is what it's called to make a disciple. 
Do you know that like a, a lot of what I hear in this culture today is I need a mentor, I need a mentor, I need a mentor, I need a mentor. Um, and it, is that God designed? I think it is. He called us to be disciplers, teachers, people who go uh, to, to be a disciple as a student. And so he, God has people in your life that you're supposed to be teaching, that you're supposed to be pouring into. And it doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord, there's somebody that doesn't know what you know. And so you just start pouring into people. I would encourage you, man, to find that Timothy in your life. I think, um, again, one of the things that is missing in the church is true discipleship. True discipleship. What, what's happened in the, in the modern church here today is everything's been funneled into the entity of the church rather than all of the responsibilities that we find in the Bible that were meant for the body of Christ have been funneled in and say, this is the church's responsibility. The church needs to be the discipler. The church needs to be the scheduler. The church needs to be this and that and whatever. That's not how it was meant to be. We are the church. People are the church. We are the disciples of Christ that are called to go into the world to disciple people. And so this is a type of discipleship, but you also are called a disciple to teach somebody something. You know enough to share something with somebody. So make sure you're doing that. And also, at the same time, make sure you're, you're getting poured into. You can't give out what you don't have. You need somebody pouring into your life. You need the Paul, Paul in your life. You know, man, could you imagine if the early church would have had YouTube or podcasting or stuff like that back in that day? Uh, you know, who, who knows what would have happened? We live in a day and age, folks, where we have access to the very best teaching in all the world. Do you know that? You have access to so much information, it's unbelievable. We live in a day and an age where information is not a problem. You can get as much information as you want. You can get a PhD in theology if you want sitting in your own home. The problem is not information. The problem is, is, our, is our willingness to be discipled. Find somebody. Let them pour into your life. You should have a real person in your life, by the way. Not just virtual stuff. It's great that we can do that, but we need somebody for accountability. Somebody to talk to us like, hey, man, that's great what you're getting, you know. Somebody you can express your thoughts to and somebody that's older than you, that knows more than you, that is mature and walking in the Lord. We need those things, you know. And, and if you're a guy, I encourage you to come to Man Coffee on uh, Wednesday mornings at 630 because it's such a great time of us, of guys being able to, because most, most time guys don't do that. Guys think they know everything. Directions? Who needs directions? Hours later, my wife's got the directions. I'm like, you sure you don't need these? It's my own thing, you know. But we need that, and, and so I would encourage you. Paul, Paul's encouraging Archippus to to step into his ministry, to be who he's called to be. He goes on and he mentions also the church in his house, speaking to the church of Colossae. And, um, and then Paul goes on with this standard greeting that he gives in verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there, there is, it's a standard greeting. It's, you know, in the Greek grace, the Hebrew peace, and he's saying um, you know, to them, just, just a normal greeting, but there is a, a significant theological um, 
order to what he says here. And you've heard it before, I'm sure. Damien Kyle says it all the time. You know, there's, there's lots of different guys that say this, but the truth of the matter is that you will never know the grace of God until you know the peace of God. It's always grace first. We get what we don't deserve. You can never know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. If you need peace in your life, you need grace first. You gotta receive the grace of God in your life. And there's an order to that. It's not peace and then grace. Because grace is the means of salvation. Peace is the result of salvation. It's always grace first. And I love that. It's such a simple little thing, but there is so much um, great theology packed into that little common phrase. I don't know if he knew what he was saying when he said it, but the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit knew that. He goes on here in verse four. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul thanks God for Philemon, and he, he's praying for him. And he isn't just saying this. Like he's serious. Well, he says, I'm praying for you. I'm remembering you in my prayers, and I'm praying for you. He's not, this isn't just a glib statement like, oh, I'm maybe praying for you. He, he was serious about this because he loved God and he loved people. And he, and he loved to pray for, I could, can only imagine what this guy's prayer list looked like, you know? This is the heart of any person that is kingdom-minded. Paul right here. Paul saying, I'm thanking God and I'm remembering you always in my prayers because I heard of your love and your faith. You know, somebody who really has a kingdom mind um, is very encouraged and, very, and, and is, is praying not just for what God is doing in their life, but for what God is doing in other people's lives. You know that? Like, like you, you know, as a church, we're praying for other churches. Like we're praying for God's kingdom to be built. We don't, we're not trying to build a kingdom. The kingdom's already built. We're just trying to add to it. We're trying to, um, you know, let the Lord use us in a way that, that his kingdom can be furthered. And so it's great when you hear about a church that is teaching the word of God and they're growing and you start praying for that church. You pray for that pastor because you understand the things that are gonna be going on in that place where there is much growth, there is much spiritual warfare, folks. And, you know, the enemy wants to stop the word of God going forward. And so we need to pray for, for what's going on in other people's ministries and lives and all these sorts of things because we care about the kingdom of God. Paul cared about the kingdom of God. He wasn't concerned about his ministry. He was concerned about the ministry, concerned about everything. Paul had heard of Philemon's love and faith towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Um, he, he's making it clear to us and to Philemon that he's a true believer. He, he knows he's, he's loving toward and he's walking in faith. He's, he loves the Lord and he loves all of God's saints. And he's walking by faith and not by sight. And Paul goes on here and, and he talks about Philemon's effectiveness in the sharing of his faith. The word share here in, in your Bible, you can circle that and you can draw a line out to the side and you can write the word fellowship. 
That's what it means here. It's, it's the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It's speaking about, he's not speaking about evangelism here. He's talking about deep relationship in the body that in the sharing of your faith, your fellowship will be effective in the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's, he's telling Philemon, I, I think he's, he's alluding to the, the, the sharing of his faith in this moment where he is either gonna forgive Philemon or not, that it might be effective in the fellowship of the body of Christ, that it might build deep, intimate relationships with, with, within the body of Christ. He's talking about fellowship here. How many of you guys pray for fellowship in the body of Christ? Like, I wanna have deep, intimate, koinonia kind of fellowship in the body of Christ. You know, it's, it's, a, it's one of those uh, things in, in, in the body of Christ that is necessary to glue, to have unity in the body. If you want unity in the body, you have to have deep koinonia fellowship with one another. That means that you have to do life together, for real. Not just say that, but we, you really do do life together. Like, in other words, you're, you're getting together with people outside the church, and you're, you're, you guys are sharing your, your, your lives with each other, getting to know each other, bearing each other's burdens, and all of these kinds of things. That's what he's talking about. But Paul is praying that Philemon's faith when he shares in the faith that in, in that deep sense of fellowship in the body that God will use this moment in Philemon's life to, to deepen that to be a light to those in the body here that he will gain full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ what Paul is referring to is the full knowledge of forgiveness the full knowledge of forgiveness it's one thing to gain uh, knowledge of forgiveness by being forgiven, and it's a far greater lesson when you're the forgiver, right? It's one thing to receive forgiveness and go, oh, yeah, I, I, they forgave me, and you walk away, and you're like, am I really that different? I'm not sure if I am. They we're forgiven. That's good. I feel good about it. It's a totally different thing to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. That's a totally different situation, and you learn far more in that moment Am I really forgiving? Am I thinking about it later? Does forgiveness remember? And it's really a challenge in your heart to truly do as God does. He casts our sin as far as evil.